Mark's Gospel. This is our third Sunday in, and we're going to finish off the rest of chapter 1. Okay, so we've got a lot of verses, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but I think we can do it. Okay, and um, I'm going to read the scripture as we go, so I'm not going to read it all first through, um, but we will read it as we go. But let me begin with a story. Visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain of the battleship remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. The lookout said, steady, captain, which meant they were on a dangerous collision course with another ship. The captain called to the signalman, signalman, signal that ship. We're on a collision course. Advise you change your course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. You change your course 20 degrees. The captain said, send I'm a captain, change your course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class, came the reply. You change your course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, send I'm a battleship, change your course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light, I'm a lighthouse. The battleship changed. <laughs> so technically, the captain had a higher ranking, at least on paper, as far as his title goes. But the lighthouse, by virtue of being a lighthouse, really had a higher authority. Right? Mark uses the word authority ten times in his gospel. In fact, all four Gospels use the word authority 48 times. So that tells us one of the themes of the Gospels is that Jesus, a, a poor guy with no official authority, is slowly revealing who he really is and that is God. He's revealing his authority, and it meets with resistance. In fact, uh, an interesting question, why didn't Jesus just show up and you know, go to the center of Jerusalem and say, look, I am the eternal God. I created the universe. 30 years ago, though, I was born of a poor peasant woman, so I'm a human, but I am God. Why didn't he do that? Well, would anybody have believed him? I mean, if somebody showed up in downtown Geneva and said, just want to let you all know I'm God, what would you think? You would think either they're crazy or demonic. You would at least think they're blasphemous. So Jesus had to enter into public ministry subtly enough to stay alive for three years, right? But spectacularly enough to reveal to his followers that he truly was God, right? So 
in the rest of Mark chapter 1, we're going to see Jesus spectacularly reveal his divine authority, yet he's going to do it subtly enough that even a guy like John the Baptist, who had just announced this is the Messiah, even John the Baptist later on scratches his head. He's in prison and he goes, send a message and ask Jesus, are you the right guy? I was kind of expecting a little more. So there's this, this dance where Jesus reveals his divine authority, but not in an earth-shattering way, but enough to convince his followers. So today, as we, we cover the rest of, of Mark 1, we're going to look at his authority. He has authority over disciples, authority over doctors of theology, authority over demons, and authority over disease. Four-pointer right there. Okay. So first of all, let's take a look at his authority over disciples. See, so he has moved from Nazareth to the top of uh, the Sea of Galilee where there's a town named Capernaum. And it says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, and that's Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Got nets, followed him. Right? That's not all. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So this is uh, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, and he has a brother named James, not the author of the book of James. This is his brother James, who's the first apostle to be martyred. All right? But they're brothers, and they are in a fishing business with their father. They were in their boat, mending the nets, Verse 20, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They immediately drop what they're doing and literally, physically follow Jesus where he's going. There's obviously a Authority in the call. Right? There's an unexplainable authority where these fishermen are willing to drop their nets, leave their businesses, leave their father, and follow Jesus. Now, you read that and you go, hmm, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, does he turn them into mindless robots? who just follow him, they have no will of their own? Well, no. Scripture teaches two things, though. It teaches that man is 100% accountable, and he has a will that he's accountable for, 
And it teaches that God is 100% sovereign even over the choices of man. Okay? Now, how do those two things go together? Here we go. Here's sovereignty of God. Here's the responsibility of man. And here's how they fit together. I don't know. Right? Some people try to say, oh, I have it all figured. I don't know. But let me just, rather than showing you how it works, let me just show you that it's true. Okay, first of all, in John 6, 37, this is about Jesus calling people to himself. John 6, 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He always gets his man or woman. All that God gives to me, they are going to come to me. John 6, 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone that the Father draws will come to him and be raised up on the last day. And here's an interesting one, Acts 13, 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. These verses show that God is sovereign over whom he calls, and all he calls will come to him, even to the point of dropping their nets in the middle of fishing and following Jesus. Now you say, oh, so he turns us into robots. We have to balance these verses with, let me give you three more verses. Acts 7.51, Stephen is preaching, and the Jewish people who are listening are becoming angry at him. So he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He's holding them accountable for resisting the Holy Spirit. Right? Actually, uh, Acts 2, 40. Peter preaches the gospel on, uh, on the day of Pentecost. And this is the NIV. It says, with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them. If, if it's just a matter of zap, 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 why is he, or why does any preacher plead with people to believe? He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. There's a choice involved here. In fact, in Luke 13, 34, this is Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I was willing, but you weren't willing. Now, um, the, the, the key here, as you become a Bible student, the key is to uphold the first set of verses without denying the second, and to uphold the second set of verses 
without denying the first. Okay. You go, I don't understand it. Good. There are some things about God we don't understand. Okay. But, but don't in our simplistic human logic go, well, if God chooses, then we're not accountable, or if we're accountable, God's not sovereign. Both are true. But what, what I, I believe Mark wants us to see this morning is the word immediately. Immediately they dropped their nets and followed, showing the authority Jesus has in his call. Okay. Have you responded to that call? Have you, so to speak, dropped your net? That doesn't necessarily mean leave your business. What it does mean is you drop whatever it is that's your God and you follow him. Okay? Let's, let's keep moving and look at his authority over doctors, not medical doctors, but doctors of divinity. All right? And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And let me just show you. Um, we've, we've been there. This is the uh, synagogue in Capernaum, and actually that is a, uh, that's made out of limestone, probably a 4th or 5th century A.D. synagogue, but right underneath there's, there's black basalt stone, and that is dated to the 1st century. And you know, a lot of times when you go to Israel, there's a doubt. Was Jesus really here? Is this where he did this? Is this where he did that? You know, even... Even the location of Calvary and the location of his tomb are debated. But there is no doubt, 100% no doubt, that this is the, the synagogue that we're reading about in Mark chapter 1. And I actually remember sitting on these steps here. A little cat came up to me. Israel's crawling with kittens because they had a mouse problem, so they brought in cats. And then my thought would be they should bring in dogs. And then to get rid of the dogs, they should bring in elephants. And then to get, in, to get rid of the elephants, they should bring in mice. Okay. Um, but th this is where Jesus is teaching, okay? So... Verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Okay? So Jesus' authority is being contrasted with the scribes of his day. Now, what's, what's a scribe? Well, a scribe is the equivalent of an educated Bible teacher, right? Somebody who has a doctor uh, of divinity. I, I actually have a degree. It's called a master of divinity, which I think is a very arrogant title. I, I would change it to a servant of divinity, but I don't get the name, the degree, okay? But these, 
um, the people are listening to Jesus and they go, he's not like our regular teachers, the, the, you know, rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so. And, and Jesus, throughout his ministry, he exposes the hypocrisy of the scribes in two ways. One, he exposes their motives. Um, in, in Luke, he says this, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They loved the status that, that being a Bible teacher could bring them. Okay? Now, in certain places, teaching the Hebrew Bible would get you killed, but not in Israel. You were respected, and you got the finest seats, and you, at the synagogue, you got to sit up front, and they loved it. That's why they were in it. Jesus wasn't in it for that. Okay? I guess when you're God, you don't need to sit at the front, in the front row. Okay? But here's a second thing that's going on. Jesus spoke with authority, and they didn't. Now, that doesn't mean he was, you know, some people take it to mean he spoke loudly. Well, you can yell and scream, and that doesn't mean you have authority. Okay? They, their, their scribes, were always quoting other scholars. Rabbi so-and-so comments on Rabbi Hillel, who comments on Rabbi Shlomo, who comments on Rabbi, and, and it's just so-and-so versus quoting so-and-so versus somebody else. And Jesus wasn't quoting anyone. He was speaking from his own authority. So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, now that's actually quoting one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Who does this guy think he is adding to one of the Ten Commandments? Here's another one. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, I say to you, right, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You can't do that. Who do you think you are? God? And they noticed. He wasn't quoting quote upon quote upon quote, but he was speaking directly because he was God. All right? So, first of all, we see that he has authority over disciples. He can call them. Now we see that he has authority over the doctors of theology. Next, we want to see that he has authority over demons. We keep going here. Demons, there we go. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? So um, what's the us here? Maybe he was possessed by a number 
of demons, or the demon could just be referring to, you know, what have you to do with, with me and our realm, okay? Um, have you come to destroy us? So the demons know this is God, and he has authority over them. They're afraid of him. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Shut up and leave, is what he's saying. Okay? And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? Now notice this. What is this? Now you would think the first thing they would say is, a man who casts out demons. But no, the first thing they say is a new teaching with authority. First, they're amazed at his teaching. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So, so let's say today, you know, we had a bulletin, and it's at order of service. We're going to sing a song. Uh, then we're going to have an exorcism. Then we're going to have a sermon. And... Um, you guys went home and said, wasn't that amazing, that sermon? <laughs> and, and the exorcism, you know, like the guy's head is spinning around. and uh, That gets second billing to the sermon. That would have to be a pretty powerful sermon, right? And they're more impressed with the sermon than the exorcism. Now, what about testing out demons? Well, Satan is real. Demons are real, and demons can possess people. Demons can possess people inside, and they can oppress people externally. They can torment people. They can influence people. Okay? Now, Hollywood would have to believe that exercising a demon involves you got to you got to be trained as a priest and perform all these elaborate rites and rituals and you need holy water and, and crosses and uh, you need the right formula to cast out the demon. In the book of Acts, we read about the seven sons of Sceva. And they were, they were, we're told they were Jewish exorcists so they made money going around trying to cast out demons now they were not believers in christ but they saw the apostle paul come to their town and in the name of jesus cast out demons so they thought hey let's try that formula you know let's name let's name the name of jesus and we can make more money so here's what happens there's a man possessed by a demon and it says, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Adjure means I command you to leave. And they didn't say by Jesus who we believe in. No, uh, I adjure you by this guy Jesus who we don't really know much about. But this guy named Paul, uh, he, he proclaims this Jesus. That's the Jesus that we're using in our formula to cast out the demons. And it says, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, 
but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So one guy, filled with demons, strips seven guys, beats them up, and they leave bleeding and naked. Right? He, the, the formula didn't work. It's because it's not about rituals and formulas. Jesus just says, shut up and leave. Because he, he's the lighthouse, right? He is the authority. He is God, and they must obey him. Okay? Now, let's keep going. So he, he has authority over disciples. He has authority over doctors of theology. He has authority over demons. Now we're going to see he has authority over disease. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You go, how did it spread? Did they text each other? No. The, uh, they had a, a, an app called Gossip, right? Have you heard about this Jesus guy's healing everybody? And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So this is Peter's house. Probably it's where Jesus lived when he was in Capernaum. So this is interesting. Here's, here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the synagogue we were in. And just right out front, that, now there's a church built over it, but they're pretty sure that that's where Simon Peter lived, in this house. And that's probably the house, and we're going to see this next week, where the paralytic, the man who's paralyzed, they climb up on the roof and they dig a hole and they lower uh, the paralytic down. That's Peter's house. Okay, First pope, right there. That's debatable, okay. Um, now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Now, isn't that interesting? First pope had a wife because he had a mother-in-law, but... Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And then it says, and she began to serve them. Just a, a, a simple question. Have you been healed by Jesus? either physically or spiritually. Peter's mother-in-law shows us the proper response. I want to serve him. Okay? When you're, when you're healed by Jesus, the response should be, how can I serve him? Not to earn anything, but out of gratitude. So she serves them. And then word spreads. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Right? So the whole town shows up. Everybody with 
you know, you name the disease and, and he's healing them and casting out demons. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, this is the second time he tells them not to identify him. The first is the first demon-possessed man, and now there's other demon-possessed people, and he says, no, don't identify me. I'm going to talk about that uh, in just a moment because um, there's somebody he heals, and he says the same thing. Don't identify me. We'll talk about why, why that is uh, in just a second. Okay. Now, I'm going to skip verses 35 and uh, 38, and we'll come back and we'll end with that. But it keeps on in 39. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Notice this guy has no doubt Jesus can heal him. It's just, are you willing? Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. Notice when he healed Peter's mother-in-law, he takes her hand. He's compassionate. It's not just a long-distance healing. He touches these people. And you're not allowed to touch a leper. But he stretched out his hand. So obviously Mark is emphasizing this. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I, I will, I am willing, I will heal you, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. So rather than Jesus being afraid, oh, I'm going to get leprosy, Jesus' uh, divine power goes into the man, and he is healed of his leprosy. Now, um, isn't it interesting that he touched him because uh, this man may have gone for months, maybe even years, without being touched. As a leper, uh, you had to uh, wear a cloth over your face, and you couldn't be in, in uh, society, and you had to shout out, unclean, unclean, and everybody would turn and run from you. So this man has been in isolation from society for years, or maybe months, and Jesus not only heals him, but he touches him. Now, in verse 43... It says this, And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. Okay, we'll come back. But go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. He says, Don't tell anybody, but you go to the priest and, and you offer a, an offering. The Old Testament said, uh, the priest would inspect your skin. The priests were the skin inspectors. And they would determine whether there was 
leprosy or, or if it had been healed. So imagine, like, Pastor Brian, job description, you know, preach and teach and do your pastor thing. Oh, and you're the skin inspector. If, the, if you have some kind of skin problem, you know, I get to look at it and declare whether it's a real problem or, you know, it's, it's not a deal. So I believe what Jesus is doing here, this is an act of compassion. Because this man is an outcast from society. Go to the priest, he'll declare you clean, and now you can enter back into society. You can go to synagogue again. You are restored, not just physically, but socially. Okay? Now, um, two last points. What we see in all the scripture today is Jesus has authority over disciples, doctors, demons, and disease. Two last points. One about the silence, and what about, one about Jesus' priority. Silence. So three times in this passage, Jesus says, don't tell anyone that you've been healed or that a demon uh, has been cast out of you. Why? Well, three possible reasons. One... There was great misunderstanding about the Messiah. He's the Messiah, but many people had a picture in his mind, or in their minds, that the Messiah was a military ruler. In fact, in John chapter 6, it says he had to hide from the crowds because they wanted to make him king by force. He's like, I didn't come to be a political king. So, if people are saying, hey, it's the Messiah, they might follow him for the wrong reasons. Second reason he may have said, be quiet, don't share anything, is because of the opposition of the religious leaders. They were threatened by him. And he knew they were trying to kill him. So the way I say it is, he's got to stay alive long enough to get killed. Right? He's got to stay alive for three years before he goes to die, and he doesn't want to die before his time. But a third reason why he may have said be quiet is just simply crowd control. This leper goes out, and he tells everybody. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The more the news spread, the less he could get from one place to another. Right? So that may, that's kind of a curiosity question. Why is he always saying, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet? Misunderstanding about the Messiah? Opposition from the leaders? And just simply crowd control. Now, last point, and we will be done. Throughout all this healing and exorcism and teaching, his priority rises. He tells us what his top priority is. So in verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He's like, I need some quiet time. I want to talk to my father. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. 
Why? They want grandpa healed, and they want leprosy healed, and they want this. Demons cast out, and, you know, we got, have we got an agenda for you? And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns. We're not, we're not going to stick around and heal everybody. Going on to the next towns. That I may preach there also. And then he says, for that is why I came. I came to preach the gospel. That's the number one priority. Not that he didn't care. He cared. He felt compassion. He healed people. He cast out demons. He had compassion. He restored them socially. But his main priority is to preach the gospel. Why? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's great if you get healed of leprosy. It's great if you're blind and you can see. But if you die and go to hell, it's not that great. So the top priority is the preaching of the gospel. Later on in Mark, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? So as we close, what's the gospel? Gospel is the good news that we who are sinners, who deserve judgment, who deserve condemnation, who deserve hell, we can be guaranteed that we're going to heaven that we are forgiven of our sins. Why? Because Jesus came primarily to die on the cross to pay for our sins so we could be forgiven and restored to him. And the really good, good, good news is how do you get that? By believing in Jesus. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call upon the Lord by saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I understand you're the Savior. Save my soul. May my sins be nailed to your cross and may your righteousness be given to me and the promises that all who trust in him will be saved. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you, you even had a, a plan to slowly reveal your authority. It was difficult. It created chaos but you revealed your authority and then ultimately you said, but my main goal is to preach the gospel so people can be saved. So Lord, my, my prayer is that everybody here would um, cry out to you, trust in you, place our, our trust in you for salvation and that you would be glorified as we see millions and millions in heaven because of what you've done on the cross. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.